Hello, this is Amy Medling. I'm a certified health coach and founder of PCOS Diva, and I'm here today with Dr. Lara Bryden. She is a naturopath doctor with a busy women's health practice in Sydney, Australia. She has a strong science background and has worked as an evolutionary biologist before qualifying as a naturopathic doctor from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto in 1997. Over the past two decades, thousands of women have entrusted Lara with their thyroid disease, PCOS, and other hormonal conditions. She is incredibly grateful for that clinical experience because it's taught her which natural treatments actually work for PCOS and other hormonal conditions. And she's here today to share with us her wisdom and what she's learned about PCOS over the last couple decades. And you can find her at Laura Bryden's Healthy Hormone blog. So welcome, Dr. Laura. Thank you for being here with us today. Oh, thank you, Amy. I'm really, really happy to be here and chat with you and your listeners. So I, I know we, we had a discussion before um, you know, our talk today, and we were talking a lot about the different sort of phenotypes of PCOS, and I know that you've done a lot of um, study on those, and I thought we could kind of start out um, our time t- today t- discussing sort of these different variants of PCOS. Okay, great. Yeah, that's definitely something that I've seen in my clinic is that PCOS is not one disease. It's not one thing. There's actually, I think, the research is bearing this out as well. There are lots of different causes of PCOS. In in a way, you could think of PCOS as a, a symptom rather than a disease. Hmm. And um, certainly the most common type, the most common cause is the insulin resistance driven PCOS, and I've certainly have treated a lot of patients with that kind, um, but one of the things I want to talk to you and your listeners about today is another type of PCOS that I've been seeing over the last decade or so that I'm finding quite troubling, which is, um, it appears to be a, a PCOS that is caused by using the pill, kind of a, a post-pill PCOS, I've called it. Um, so, yeah, that's something I'd like to talk to you about. Yeah, that that is really interesting. Um, I know in my own personal experience, I got to the point where I could uh, no longer tolerate the pill. I know I had been um, prescribed the, the birth control pill to regulate periods. Gosh, I was probably 16 at the time and, you know, kind of took that throughout my 20s. And then when wanting to try to get pregnant, I came off of it. And then after that successful um, first pregnancy, tried to get back on it and uh, had a really difficult time. So I decided that it just wasn't for me. I I really uh, messed with my moods. And the more that I, you know, once I kind of started PCOS Diva and started investigating the pill, I found that there's a lot of downsides to using the pill for therapy for PCOS. So I was hoping that you could kind of share your experience with that. Absolutely. And this is something, in truth, I'm very passionate about. I feel that this information is not it's not out there the way it should be. One of the first things I'll say, I'll just respond to what you just said there, that you were prescribed the pill to regulate your periods. And I think if your listeners come away with one thing from this podcast today, so one piece of information, it's to understand that the bleeds 
that the pill induces are not periods. They really, from a hormonal, from a physiological sense, they have no, they bear no resemblance to a real period. It's very much just kind of an artificial reassurance that, um, of, of a type of bleed. And in fact, it's quite interesting when they um, first invented the pill in the 1960s, they, I mean, the pill could be dosed in any way. It could be dosed, you know, you could take it every day and have a bleed every three months or every 50 days or just any random number of days. And from the very beginning, they, they knew that they, they needed to do this kind of monthly withdrawal bleed, pill withdrawal bleed to kind of reassure women, make them feel that it was, it had some resemblance to their own menstrual cycle. So if it's not a, a real typical bleed, then do you feel like it's really of benefit then to women with PCOS? I would, I'm going to say no. I mean, I think the one benefit, which I'm sure you understand, is that there is a concern with very chronic PCOS, especially if women aren't having any periods of their own, on their own, that you need to shed the uterine lining once in a while, that, that so a few times a year, that's kind of a, a safety thing to prevent any mm-hmm. abnormalities forming in the lining. And I, the other reason they sometimes will give it is just with the idea that, you know, you need to get a certain amount of estrogen for bone health. Um, mm-hmm. But my, I, my experience with an overwhelming number of women is that in most cases, we can get their periods going fairly regularly anyway. So I don't feel... Yeah, from that point of view, I really don't feel like the pill has any benefit. It, um, of course, the other reason that women use it is for skin because it masks, it clears up acne very well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I might just share with you now kind of a, a very, a very common story that I, I see with patients, which is that they were put on the pill as a teenager, primarily, mm-hmm. often primarily for acne, although the story goes, although sometimes they might have had heavy periods, um, in many cases, their periods were regular at that time, although they might have been a little bit irregular. But let me say for a 14 or 15-year-old to have slightly irregular periods is normal. You know, as we're, when we're teenagers and our cycles are just getting going and our ovulations are becoming established, that's, that's not unusual to have irregular periods at that age. And then what happens is these women, the, the pill works very well to clear up acne, the synthetic estrogens. Um, dry up the skin oils and so it you know it feels really good in that sense but then what happens is maybe sort of within the next decade seven or eight years later the patients tell me they then try to stop the pill and their acne flares which is often worse than it was before because it's a, a, a withdrawal the skin sort of goes into a bit of shock losing its synthetic estrogen and can break out even more strongly than before and the other thing that some, often happens, not every woman, obviously, but sometimes the periods don't come back. And that's well established in the, sort of the literature about the pill. It's, it, it, it makes sense because the pill suppresses ovulation. And so sometimes for some women that can take many months or up to a year or two to reestablish ovulation mm-hmm. after stopping the pill. And very often in that time, a diagnosis of PCOS is made. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that sometimes that is not, that is a temporary type of PCOS. Yes, maybe it meets the criteria of PCOS in terms of obviously lack of periods and perhaps an ultrasound finding. The testosterone, testosterone may or may not be elevated at that time. Often LH, the hormone LH, luteinizing hormone is elevated post pill very often. 
And then what happens, it, it's, I, I'm, I'm so passionate about it because it's such a sad story. So then what happens is they, after a few months off the pill, they're very frustrated and they go back on the pill just as an attempt to have some bleeds again and um, clear up their skin. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, the lo- for some of these women, the longer they do stay on the pill and the more often they keep just going back on it, the more difficult it will be eventually to get their own periods back. Mm. And I know so many of my followers are trying to conceive, so that's just um, really frustrating. Of course. <laughs> because, you know, we want to get um, our cycles back for yeah. possible conception. Absolutely. So ovulation clearly is, is critical for conception. But I, I also want to broaden the, just the discussion about that. I would argue that ovulation is central to women's hormonal health at any time, even when they're not trying to conceive. And the best time to get your ovulations going is years before you, you plan to conceive. So then mm-hmm. you're not faced with that kind of time, the panic and the you know, time constraint of, of, mm-hmm. of trying to fall pregnant, trying to become pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and um, but I, I want to just share a little bit of good news is, and I'm sure you've seen the literature too, that women with PCOS, it, it, um, it seems that we remain fertile longer because we haven't been ovulating every month. Yes, and that yeah. I can share, I can say with all honesty, is I see that in clinic. I was just with a patient yesterday in her early 40s who history of PCOS diagnosed 15 or 20 years ago, and she was just saying to me now for the first time, her cycles are coming you know, every 28 days. She's noticed some of her symptoms improving. So it's it's definitely it's very interesting thing about PCOS that there's a yeah, an extended fertility. You know, basically one of the things it comes down to for all women, our cycles get closer together as we age often. So mm-hmm. you know, for women who don't have PCOS and they start having in their 40s kind of um kind of more more frequent periods. For PCOS, then looks like kind of a more normal period. And yes, there is evidence that ovarian reserve is um, women with PCOS have a, a longer-lasting ovarian reserve yeah. into their early 40s. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that is the good news. Um, well, I know that when I came off the pill, I suffered horrible hair loss. Um, yes. And I'm sure that you're seeing that in your some of your patients too, right? Yeah, I might respond to that. It, hair loss, on my blog, um, my, po- my post on hair loss is the single most popular Post. I've, I've got to write a follow-up on it because it, 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 it consistently gets probably four times more views than anything else I've written about. Yeah. Hormonal hair loss is a big concern. And I'll just, obviously, hair loss is a, a symptom of PCOS, but it's a symptom of a lot of other kinds of hormonal problems. And I'll say this, it is a symptom. The pill, many different, depending on the type of progestin in the pill, um, Many types of pill are known, pills are known to cause hair loss. It might be something that you see uh, even after a year or two or more of, of using the pill. It starts to come on. The pills that are typically used for PCOS are a bit better in that regard. They, they use a progestin that's less, um, what they call androgenic, sort of less hair loss inducing. But mm-hmm. certainly I see a lot of sort of cases of hair loss that started on the pill and then take years to resolve. And then exactly as you said, actually st- stopping the pill, actually any kind of sudden, any any hormonal change. So what happens when you stop the, the synthetic estrogens of the pill, that, that can induce a temporary hair loss that comes on a few months later. And usually if it's just that, 
kind of stopping the pill hair loss that will I don't know what you found in your case, but usually that will resolve over mm-hmm. you know over a few months, kind of six months. Yeah, it was kind of like a postpartum hair loss. So it, it, yes. it did it, it shed about three months, you know, like postpartum, and then came back yep. about six to eight months later. Yep. Um, but you know, the other thing that I know what I experienced with the pill is I just didn't feel myself. My my moods were altered. You know, I definitely felt down. Libido was not the same. Um, maybe you could speak to that. You know, I'm sure I'm not the only one that was experiencing those effects. <laughs> no. And what's sad, I'll start, I'll say this. What's sad is how little research there is into this. <laughs> I almost feel tearful when I'm saying this because it's just, it's such a common experience that women say that clinicians hear, and yet there's shockingly little research into it. There's one, there's a professor here in Australia at Monash University. And if I refer to any studies here today, I don't have a lot of the actual details of the references at my fingertips here, but um, we could we could perhaps post that later on your website. There is an Australian researcher who about four or five years ago looked at a study on um, depression, anxiety, particularly linked to the Yasmin pill, and she found very strong correlation. And she, interestingly, she found, you know, it's the kind of thing, mood changes that can happen for some women almost as soon as they take it, you know, almost from day one. But for mm-hmm. some women, it's a mood disorder that comes on after some months or even years of use, which is actually very troubling because it's difficult then for women to understand what's going on for them. And again, for, I'll just speak about teenagers. Um, they... It's, it's, I mean, yes. So you put a 15-year-old on the pill, and if, then she develops some, you know, anxiety or depression disorder, sort of in the next year or two after that. Is she even, or are the parents even going to really understand what that's about? I mean, it's still, she's still developing as a human being, and it, it's often, I think, just seen as something, you know, an onset of depression that was going to happen anyway. And I'm convinced. I've heard so many stories of, you know, young women who. Then, you know, they say, oh, I, I got depression, you know, I was diagnosed with depression in grade 12 or whatever. And then I asked them, well, when had you started the pill in the year or two before? And inevitably, often, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, that then leads to other medications, which is, which is a problem as well. Yeah, it's, you know, again, we're, we're treating the symptoms rather than the underlying cause. Um, and, and it really, you know, like you, I'm I'm a big sort of proponent of, you know, against the pill. I've written about it quite a bit on on my site. Uh, And, you know, in addition to the, uh, you know, mood disorders, I think it it also, like, depletes nutrients and um, kind of dysregulates our our gut bacteria, which I think a lot of disease you can kind of track back to your gut health. So maybe you can speak to that a little bit. Oh, absolutely. There's no question. It disrupts intestinal bacteria. <clears throat> Excuse me, but I will say that, um, look, I think the main, there's, there are many issues with the pill. I think health issues, but I just want to make sure we don't lose sight of the fact that the main downside to the pill is that it shuts down the female hormonal system. It switches mm-hmm. off women's own hormones 
completely. And it is not an exaggeration to use the term castration. It's, mm-hmm. It is a type of, it's chemical castration of women. And I just, sometimes I just imagine, you know, what if we were, anyone was proposing to do this to, to young men and men and just turn off their own testosterone production and replace it with a, a synthetic kind of Frankenstein hormone, which is really nothing very similar at all to our own hormones. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it's this essentially castration, which is why where all these other problems are coming from. The pill causes weight gain in many cases, not not every case, um, certainly depression. The other thing it causes, which is also has a very sad lack of research, is um, a loss of libido and sex drive, which can be, so the research that has been done on this suggests that it can take, that, that can be a semi-permanent condition. So even once women stop the pill, it can take them years to regain what would would have been a normal libido for them. And again, I see this as a problem for when we're putting teenagers on the pill. It's like, Mm -hmm. what have we, you know, that's at an age before they maybe even really understand what a normal libido for them is like. Mm -hmm. The other thing that the pill does, the other metabolic disruption that it does, I'm going to talk about this here. The pill causes insulin resistance. And this is something that's been in the research. It came out first, one of the first kind of editorial came out, came out in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology in 2003. And, a, you know, a bit, sort of a big warning. And again, this is a reference I can put on your site later. Mm-hmm. So raising the question of if, since the pill causes insulin resistance, is this really something we should be given prescribing for women with PCOS? Right. when insulin resistance is the main cause of the condition. And that was more than 10 years ago. And I was convinced at the time that that would be kind of a turning point watershed mark and that we would move away from all of this pill prescribing mm-hmm. for PCOS. And, that, of course, that hasn't happened generally, although I'll share with you it's happened in, for some people. There's a very prominent endocrinologist here in Sydney, um, Professor Warren Kitson, who I chatted with you about last week, Amy, and he, one of the things I love when I speak to his patients is he is telling them consistently, his PCOS patients, that the pill is bad for PCOS. It worsens mm-hmm. the underlying condition. Mm-hmm. It masks the symptoms. It gives a kind of reassuring phantom bleed that doesn't mm-hmm. really mean anything about the condition. And meanwhile, it's steadily worsening the underlying insulin resistance. Yeah, and I think, um, and that's that's really why I'm so driven to to do the work um, that I do with PCOS Diva is to help women um, advocate for themselves and to have the knowledge that they need um, in order to have these kind of frank discussions with their doctors, because I think a lot of doctors um, don't understand understand all of these repercussions of the pills, it's really easy to write a prescription for the pill for um, PCOS. When you say in, in, in all reality, it's just kind of masking the symptoms. And, um, you know, it, it's difficult, especially women that are wanting to get pregnant off of the pill, and, and now they're dealing with, you know, having to try to ovulate on their own. Um, the other thing that I find really scary about the pill, and this was some research that... Uh, you know, it came out last summer that women with PCOS who are on the pill are um, have double the chance of blood clots than those um, without PCOS right. who are on the pill. 
well, that kind of makes sense because of the underlying sort of metabolic disorder. The insulin resistance is already putting women at more at risk for cardiovascular events. I hadn't actually seen that research, so I might, I try to, might try to get that from you. But yeah, the, the pill, um, the frequency of fatal blood clots is, um, you know, they keep telling us oh, it's relatively rare. I think it's sort of one in 10,000 women or something. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's still, when it comes to death, <laughs> that to me, that's still a risk that is just, you know, a bit higher than acceptable. Um, yeah. I think I, I'm, I know that's getting downplayed in the media quite a bit. Well, yeah, and I mean, it's still low, but I can't tell you how many women I've heard from since I wrote the article about it. Um, that have reached out to me saying that they're in their 20s, that they went to the emergency room, um, and they, you know, if they hadn't gotten there, um, you know, as early as they did, that they may have lost their life. So I know that there's women out there that are experiencing these, you know, really life-threatening symptoms. So it's just something that you need to be fully aware of all of these risks when you decide to take the pills. So that's, you know, I really see that as, as, as a real mission to kind of get this information out there. Um, but so, Dr. Lara, if, you know, a woman decides not to take the pill and she's not getting her periods, you know, what what are the solutions? You know, what are how okay. are you treating your patients? Okay. So for me, it comes down to one simple question. <laughs> what in this individual woman, you know, for the, the, the woman that's sitting with me, what is it that is preventing her ovulation? So it's always, I think about sort of recovering from the pill and treating PCOS and it's, it's all about re- reclaiming, regaining a healthy ovulation, a fairly regular ovulation. And I am convinced that that is possible for most people. That's been my experience overwhelmingly, that most people can regain that. But, and I'll, I'll just say that even if Ovulate, the ovaries are very dynamic, highly dynamic structures. And even, and just to be clear about this, that, you know, a woman may have been told, okay, you're not ovulating, you didn't ovulate, that's what the blood test shows, that's what the ultrasound shows. That was just a moment in time. That can all change within a few months and ovulation can be regained. And as soon as ovulation is regained and is happening again, then the all the parameters change. So then the blood test markers change, the ultrasound findings can change dramatically. It's, I think it's this, um, you know, sort of dynamic sense of the ovaries that is, is something also I'd like to communicate to people that it's, mm-hmm. um, there's a, a lot of changes is very possible. Yeah, I guess it's, it's almost like when you get your blood work done, you're only looking at it in that one moment of time. But um, it's not really indicative of, of, you know, what you're facing over the course of a lifetime. So, no. you, you, I mean, it can change. And, and you know, I, I see that happening, like, on a daily basis. Women are writing to me, you know, after changing their diet and lifestyle and their periods are coming back and they start to ovulate. And it doesn't really take all that much time, you know, anywhere <laughs> from, you know, one to six months. And, um, you know, they're seeing a huge difference. It's true. And so the treatments, so just in terms of, just, just briefly about treatments, there are lots of different treatments that work. And that's because there are lots of different kind of reasons why women aren't ovulating. So it, it's a, it is, it does require a bit of detective work. I'll, I'll say the fir- very first thing 
for women to understand about their condition is to try to understand from their doctor, are they insulin resistant or not? Obviously, in most cases of PCOS, they are, but not every case. And it's, it's not always to do with being overweight, because you can have um, normal weight, oh, even sort of slender women that are insulin resistant. So it requires a blood mm-hmm. test, either a glucose tolerance test or fasting insulin. And then once once that's been established, then, um, yeah, obviously then diet and exercise and I'll say the nutrient that sensitizes insulin, that improves insulin resistance more than anything else, in my experience, is magnesium. It's fantastic for the insulin mm-hmm. receptor. Yeah. It's just a quick kind of tip, safe, I'll I'll put that out there because it's pretty safe for almost anyone to use. Um, And then the second thing, and so then there's lots of other steps. So then you determine if you're insulin resistant. If not, obviously if not, then that's when it becomes, there's a lot more things to look at. But I'll just raise um, the point that another underlying issue for a lot of women, a a thing that's preventing ovulation is um, chronic inflammation. Mm-hmm. which can come from sort of inflammatory foods like gluten and dairy and um, and sugar. In, in many cases, not in every case, there isn't one size fits all with this, with, you know, with diet or with an anti-inflammatory approach for PCOS. Yeah, I, I have to um, just throw a little plug in for magnesium. I, I can tell you that the, the days that I'm feeling really stressed out, um, taking an Epsom salt bath, which is rich in magnesium, it just does wonders for, <laughs> for it's just such a calming mineral, and it really yeah. kind of brings me back into balance. So, um, you know, if you're out there and feeling stressed and mm-hmm. need, need some relaxation, try, try an Epsom salt, salt bath um, to get your yeah. extra magnesium. But yeah, I, I think inflammation is is a huge issue for PCOS. I mean, I think it even um, you know a lot of women with PCOS have inflamed gums, and they don't really know what's causing it because they brush and floss. But it's this sort of systemic inflammation that's going on. Um, yeah, that needs to. And be I, I'm, Go ahead. Oh no, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. And yeah, it, it's um it's very common. And I know I'll just comment here. I know it can be a little bit perhaps sort of overwhelming this idea that this is chronic inflammation. I know, I know that can, just from my experience with my own patients, that can leave people feeling a little bit confused. But it, it doesn't have to be complicated. It's um, very often it's, it's starting chronic inflammation. The research is very often it's starting in the digestive system. Mm. So especially if you have any digestive symptoms, then that's the place. I, I'll often I'll say to my PCOS patients, Nothing is going to happen with your over. You know, we're not going to get where we need to be with your hormonal health until your digestion is happy. So it's it's a nice kind of starting place. And also, you can get very rapid improvement in digestion if you, you know, remove some of the foods that aren't agreeing with you, or take a probiotic, or there's very solid things you can do, knowing that it will help with your overall PCOS as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing that we were going to discuss was about the misnomer of PCOS, that polycystic yes. ovaries isn't really indicative often of what's really going on. So maybe you can talk a little bit about ovarian yeah. cysts. Yeah, and um, as you know, Amy, I think you said you spoke to uh, someone who was involved with this, one of the, the, um, the conditions yeah, of PCOS. Doc- is, is, Dr. Denise. Yeah, go ahead. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, Dr. Andrea Denave at um, yeah. Northwestern. Yeah, she's. Yeah. Um, she was a, a part of the Nash, um, National Institute of Health, the big PCOS workshop where they came up yeah. with the idea of a name change. Yeah. Yeah. It's headed for a name change, mm-hmm. and it desperately needs it. It desperately needs it because the name is confusing because the name implies that the condition is about ovaries and that the condition of it is about cysts, the polycystic ovarian condition. You know, the, the very those two things are in the name, so it's no surprise that women come away with the impression that that's what it's about. But the ovaries, my I mean, my understanding of this condition is the ovaries are the victims. You know, the, the lack of ovulation is be, always because of a, a, a broader hormonal condition in the body, usually insulin resistance, although it can be other things like inflammation or thyroid or other things that are happening in the body that are impairing ovulation. And then what happens is when when regular ovulation is not occurring, then the ovaries take on that polycystic appearance. And I'll just I'll just speak about cysts for a minute. So the cyst cysts are normal for the ovary. A cyst really is just defined as a fluid filled sac, which in the case mm-hmm. of the ovary is the little follicle the follicle sac that contains the egg, essentially. So a normal healthy ovary has cysts. It will have a normal healthy ovary will have cysts that are at different stages of development towards going towards ovulation. Usually they don't have a, like a dominant follicle visible on ultrasound, which is a larger normal cyst, essentially. And um, so the problem is that, it, well, one of the things about that, I'll say, as I said earlier, it's very dynamic. So one, the appearance of the ovaries on ultrasound one month could be totally different three months later once, you know, there have been some follicles that have developed towards ovulation. The thing about the ultrasound finding is that I think I've heard, you know, you say in one of your podcasts that um, a lot of women with, you can have PCOS but have normal ultrasound. Mm-hmm. Also, conversely, you can have a polycystic appearance on ultrasound but not have PCOS. Mm-hmm. And then what the, there's a research study, and again, I can share this link if people are interested, that showed, so that in the study, they, they just kind of sampled, they did an ultrasound on normal women just random dates of normal women, and they found that one in four women with normal hormone balance would show polycystic ovarian appearance on the ultrasound at you know at the time of the testing. And again, in their case, a few months later, it could be totally different. So what they're seeing is that normal women, even women without PCOS, will occasionally have months where they don't ovulate, and then that's then they'll have the appearance of polycystic uh, ovarian sort of ovaries on the ultrasound. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of, I, I know this is not something that I experience, but there are kind of a subset of women with PCOS that have, like, the really painful cysts during their cycles. Do, do you know what, what's going on there? Yeah, okay, I think, okay, so first of all, I'll say there are lots of different types of abnormal ovarian cysts. So we've talked about kind of the normal cyst, which is really just, you know, the dominant follicle. Then there are different kind of um, what they're called sort of pathological cysts that can form in different phases of the menstrual cycle where the, this, you know, the follicle swells too, too large and can burst, and that can be quite painful and quite serious. So 
I mean, that can happen to anyone. So I guess it wouldn't be impossible for that to happen for some people that have also been mm-hmm. experiencing a, poly, a you know, PCOS type hormonal picture. But the other thing is, I think what the other thing I see and with my patients is that if someone has not ovulated in a long time, and that would include being on the pill, because of course there's ovulation on the pill. So if someone, if it's been maybe years, maybe 10 years or 15 years since, since ovulation has occurred, it's not unusual when, especially when the right diet and treatment is put in place and the woman starts moving towards ovulation and having ovulations, it's not unusual for that to be a bit painful because it, it, ovulation, a normal healthy ovulation is the egg bursts out of the side of the ovary. It's, it's a quite a, it's a little, it's quite a little violent event. I mean, for most women, that's, they're not going to notice more than a little kind of ping when that happens, but, um, there's a bit of inflammation involved, normally like localized inflammation. So I certainly find that with what I say to my patients is that if you're experiencing that pain when you're first getting going, kind of reestablishing your ovulations, not to worry too much. You know, usually we can use, you know, a natural anti-inflammatory like turmeric or something just to ease that. But um, just to, to know that usually that improves after four or five cycles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... I wanted to just um, mention to our listeners that your blog is amazing. I know I kind of stumbled upon you when I was doing some research on dairy and PCOS, and I, I know I invited you to write that awesome article about kesomorphins. If um, For those listening, if you haven't read it yet, please go to PCOSDiva.com and, and, and read um, Dr. Lara's guest post about kesomorphins and dairy, but she has an amazing blog. It's at um, larabryden.com. Lots of really wonderful information for the PCOS patient. And I know that you're in, in the middle of writing a book. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the book you're working on. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so I'm aiming to, I'm about, I'm on working on Chapter 7, <laughs> but I'm about two-thirds through. I'm aiming to release it. Probably early 2015. It's, it's a, what it is, it's kind of a how-to manual for period health. Essentially, you know, for the, the average woman to, to learn how to use diet and nutrition and herbs to reestablish healthy ovulation. I talk a lot about ovulation and the, you know, the value of that. And therefore to be able to treat different period problems, including, um, heavy periods, PMS, I have a chapter, I'm working currently on the chapter on irregular periods and PCOS. And there's also a chapter where I have a big serious rant against the pill, that's chapter two. And then I also talk about um, natural methods of contraception and uh, other methods of contraception. So um, just to, just so that I'm, my hope is that women will come away feeling, sort of knowing what some of their options are and feeling hopeful about what they can do for their period health. Oh, I can't wait to read it. I, I think you, you had just mentioned about other options for contraception. Um, I'm sure a lot of women listening are thinking, well, okay, if I if I'm you know can't be taking the pill because of all these side effects, but I don't want to get pregnant. Um, you know what 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 are yeah. our options? Okay, I'm just going to list them briefly, and then and obviously it requires you know a bit more. Before anyone makes a, a firm decision for themselves, they'll have to investigate it more yeah. in more detail. But um, the best methods, um, I, I do think it's within the power of most women to use a, a form of fertility awareness method. Mm-hmm. That's about learn, you know, understanding, and there's lots of different ways you can do it. Temperature, you can do urine tests, you can learn to read your 
for your vaginal cervical fluid or mucus. And it's about um, learning to know when you're fertile and when you're not, and using that information to then you to abstain and or use barrier methods. And I know it's over the last the decades it's been kind of poo-pooed. I think it's really sad. I, I feel we're in a currently this last few years there's a, a movement happening to reclaim that. I think um, it's a viable method even for young women. Although I will say, you know, for women with PCOS it can be a problem because regular it's required you need to have regular cycles really to be able to use it um so that's fertility awareness the -hmm. other methods i recommend are barrier methods including condoms which i think are great one of the oldest methods of contraception out there um there's also something called the cervical cap which is another barrier method and then i also do i'm i recommend i mean I, i i i'm open to get um an iud or intrauterine device for some women, it's um, obviously there are downsides to the IUD, so it's not necessarily for everyone. But it's, um, in my view, so what it is, it's a little device that the doctor inserts in the uterus when it prevents implantation, prevents pregnancy that way, stays there for years. Um, in my view, it's it, it's highly preferable to the pill, just because it, with, even with the what the main issue is that even with, with the IUD. The IUD does not suppress hormones, so ovulation can still occur. So women can mm-hmm. still enjoy the benefits of their own estrogen and their own progesterone, which they can mm-hmm. only get from ovulation. But the the non-hormonal IUD, right? Like not like the Marina. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Correct. Correct. Copper, so the like copper, copper IUD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the copper IUD. The, the Marina. It's interesting. The little progestin IUD. It's. Um, I'm kind of following the research about this. It does not. It may or may not suppress ovulation. I don't think it suppresses ovulation in all women. So the marina is kind of my very last backup plan. You know, if someone, depending on the woman, if she really, for whatever reason, you know, can't use one of the other methods that we've talked about, I think it's, it's not ideal, but in my view, it's actually still preferable to the pill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's been just wonderful to have you mm-hmm. um you share your time with us, and I always like to ask to kind of end these podcasts with a real, you know, leave us on a positive note about PCOS. Okay, I guess the main thing I'd I'd say again to your to your listeners is I my clinical experience, and this is with thousands of women, or you know, over the last two decades, I'm convinced that for most people, it's a reversible condition. It's not a, you know, life sentence diagnosis. And I, and very often I'm, you know, reach the point with some women where I'm encouraging them maybe, you know, once their cycles are regular and the, and the symptoms have subsided, then I think often it can be time to let go of the diagnosis. So I'm very hopeful about the condition. Um, it's one of my favorite things to treat because it responds so well to natural mm-hmm. treatment. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's so great to hear. And I know that's been my experience too. Um, and uh, I'm going to post Dr. Lara's link uh, to her blog. And again, I really encourage you to visit it. And um, you know, you can reach her there. And thanks again for your time thanks. today. Th- thank you so much, Amy, and everyone. 